Good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning, and it's a great privilege to be able to bring the word uh, uh, on behalf of uh, God's people. This morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 9, and so I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 9. And while you're finding your place, I'll just share a little bit about the Psalms in general. There's a lot of them. Uh, the Psalms account for um, so much of what is written to describe our emotional state of being at any time. So sometimes when we're struggling, we'll turn to the Psalms. Relate to a psalmist, it's usually David, but to relate to a psalmist who maybe has struggled in similar ways that we have, or perhaps are going through a time of great rejoicing, and we want words to express our heart attitude toward God, we'll turn to the Psalms. There are many Psalms that express gratitude, thanksgiving, and place where we find expression in all ways for what we are going through. And so I've chosen this morning to go through Psalm 9. Um, I did this, um, I chose Psalm 9 for a Sunday school hour last year, and it didn't get recorded, and there were a number of people that were interested in, in uh, reflecting on these thoughts again um, because of that fact. And so I chose this morning to do this, uh, this same passage. Uh, we didn't get very far during the Sunday school hour, and my goal this morning is to get through the whole psalm. So because we're not interacting, perhaps there will be a way for me to get through it all. So I'd like to begin by reading Psalm chapter 9. It says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all thy wonders. I will be glad and exult in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before thee, for thou hast maintained my just cause. Thou dost sit on the throne judging righteously. Thou hast rebuked the nations. Thou hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and thou hast uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, O Lord, hast not forsaken those who seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Behold my affliction from those who hate me. Thou who dost lift me up from the gates of death that I may tell of all thy praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in thy salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid, their own feet or their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known, he has ex executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before thee. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. So the psalm obviously covers a lot of themes, but it begins with the theme of offering thanksgiving. And so as you look at Psalm uh, 9 verse 1, you see that I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. This is a psalm of David, and David was a man who knew God well. He walked with God from his youth, and so throughout the course of his life, 
he was one who would turn to God in all things, even in offering God thanksgiving, which we have come to know because of what we find in the New Testament is exactly the will of God for our lives. And so what I'd like you to do is look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It's a simple couple of verses, but profound in all that it says. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So the psalm begins by leading us into doing the very will of God, giving God thanksgiving, giving him praise, offering up to him what he is worthy to receive. God has mightily blessed us in so many ways. When I think about God offering up, or when, we, when I think about us as human beings offering up to God thanksgiving, um, I was reminded last Sunday when John David was preaching on Matthew 26, we saw Mary in, the, in that narrative coming before her Lord with very expensive perfume and anointing him, preparing him for burial. She understood the worth of the perfume and that's why she chose it, because she understood the greater worth of her Lord that she anointed with that perfume. She understood the value of her Lord, and she offered to him that expression of praise and gratitude and thanksgiving and worship. They were meeting at that moment in time in Simon the leper's home. And you may recall that there were many lepers that Jesus healed. And there was an accounting of a time when Jesus healed 10 of them at one time. Luke 17, 11 through 18 records that narrative. And you, you might also recall that of the 10 that were healed of their leprosy, only one returned. And the one that returned offered thanksgiving to Jesus. And Jesus' response was, were there not 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner, this one who was at the uh, Samaritan, came back and said thank you to Jesus. Let us not be counted among those nine. Let us be like the one who came and offered thanksgiving to their God. So I wish for us to give testament this morning as you think, as you ponder, as we interact together through the message. I want you to think of the things that God has done for you. How has God blessed you? What has God done in your life, specifically in your circumstances, that you have opportunity and occasion to give thanks and praise to him. Be mindful of these things always. This is the will of God for you to do these things. I am mindful of the fact that I was given the privilege at an early age of coming to know some of the verses in the Bible that described God's great love for me. Uh, you may be familiar with Romans 5.8 that says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gift of our salvation that we have sung about this morning, that we have pondered already in our time of worship, is an incredible gift, one that we must not take lightly. It's actually going to be the theme of the whole message as we look through the themes of Psalm 9. We're going to see it all in light of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world. He was born of the Virgin Mary, fully God and fully man, that he entered into human history as a man, as God among us, to lead us to understand God's heart toward us, that even though we were lost in sin, he loved us so much that he was willing to bear the burden of those that he came to save on the cross. And so the Lord Jesus, when the time was fulfilled,
for him to do so, willingly gave up his life on the cross. And he bore upon himself the debt and the penalty in full for those sins that wretched sinners like you and me had committed against a holy God. And as I unpack Psalm 9, I'm hoping that I will open up our eyes to some realities about the gospel that we may not have fully understood. The last song we just sung described that we were once enemies, but now we're seated at his table. That we were once enemies, but we are now the friends of God. That relationship of being turned from an enemy into a friend came at the expense of God himself when Jesus bore the brunt of the penalty for our sin on the cross. It's a beautiful message, and it's one for which we can always be thankful. For all eternity, we who are his own will be thankful for that gift of salvation. Verse 2 says, I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Well, to be glad and to exalt is to rejoice, and David was good at rejoicing. Uh, you may recall the story of David in 1 Samuel chapter 6. The Ark of the Covenant, which was the, the physical representation of God's presence with his people, had been removed from their midst. It was with the Philistines, and they were getting it back. Finally, it was going to come to Jerusalem. And so David was leading the procession into Jerusalem, and he was so overcome with worship of God and just elation and rejoicing over the fact that God's presence was now going to be manifest in their, in their midst, he stripped off all of his royal garments, and he was singing and dancing in front of all the people as their king. He was completely unashamed to do that, and he humbled himself entirely before his God. He knew who the one true God was, and he had no problem fully rejoicing in that fact that his God was, was there with his people. Uh, I can reflect back in time and think of the times when I was uh, growing up in the church. In my middle school years, there was an associate pastor who had come to know the Lord as an adult, and he had he'd been so overcome with the grace of God in his own life that whenever he was preaching, sharing a message, he just could not get through it without tears of joy streaming down his face. And he would always, somewhere in his message, break out in song. And he would sing, not always on key, but always heartfelt to the Lord, solo, without any accompaniment. And it was just an, a, something that stuck with me because of the fact that he was just so willing to express himself in that way. It reminded me of David, as, as he was just always willing to just share his heart before the people related to how he felt about the Lord and that's a, that's a beautiful thing. It made an impression on me. And so as I raised my own children, whenever we were in the car, for whatever reason, when there would be occasion to worship the Lord, we would break out and sing. And so the kids learned all the songs that I learned when I was a kid that way. And you can't even find most of these songs anymore. The way, that, the way I learned them because of the people that taught them, they, they shaped them their own way. And so I know Nate was trying to find one of the songs we sing together to see if he could find anybody else in the world that sings it the way I do, and nope, it's unique at this point in time, as far as we know. And so, but Nate now will say things like, does anybody feel like singing? And then that's the cue, and we'll start worshiping the Lord together. And so it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to have that freedom in your relationship with the Lord, and I encourage you to worship him as David did, just with all of your being, with all of your might, Give the Lord his due. 
Well, this psalm transitions into some other themes, things that maybe don't seem to relate to the offering of thanksgiving. And uh, if we look at the next few verses, verses 3 through 10, what we find are these words. It says, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. And you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, O Lord, have forsaken, you have not forsaken those who seek you. We're moving into the concept of a need for justice to take place in, in our lives, or we, we seek it. When wrongs are committed against us, we want them set right in some way. And when David was writing this, there was a limited understanding of how justice would be brought about. They did have a covenant, the people of Israel had a covenant relationship with God. God had made it very clear that if they walked with him and worshiped him alone and followed his commands, that he would bless them. They would have protection for their national borders. They would be blessed with the production of food and their livestock would flourish and their their families would grow. These were the promises that God had given to his people. And there was a flip side to that, that if they didn't worship him, that he would withhold that blessing and that they would be overcome by their enemies and that things wouldn't go so well. There would be famine in the land and their families would not grow and there would be all kinds of catastrophe that they would, that they would experience that would befall them. And that cycle of Israel going through times of worshiping and honoring God and being blessed, and then the cycle would change, a new generation would come up that did not honor or worship God, and that generation would be taken into captivity, and then in their pain and dismay, they would turn back to God. So you read through the book of Judges, it would be a great example of watching that cycle unfold, and, and then of course in the cycle of the kings of Israel, you see that same thing, that same pattern. And so what we're seeing is a, is a pattern that's, theologians have called it the retribution principle, the idea that God is a righteous judge, and so he rewards the righteous, and God, because he's a righteous judge, he will punish evildoers. It's a general principle. We see in the New Testament something similar to this in Galatians 6, 7 through 8, where it says, do not, deceive, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So the reaping and the sowing analogy is, is part of what the Council of Scripture gives us to understand things. And there's this general sense in which if you, in your life, pattern your life after the things that God has told you are right and good and true and pure, you will have outcomes that are generally that way. And if you pattern your life after the descriptions of things that are against God, you will have destroyed relationships on every front. You can't lie and cheat and deceive you can't commit adultery, you can't murder, you can't do all of these things with the people around you and hope to have any semblance of healthy relationship. You will just completely bankrupt all of your relationships in a matter of a small amount of time. That's a simple principle of reaping and sowing, borne out. But that doesn't account necessarily for God's judgment of sin 
and his need to carry out a righteous outcome within the matters and the affairs of mankind. And so there's many levels of this, correct? You have the national level. You have a nation, whether the nation is serving God or not serving God, and what's God's attitude toward that and responsibility toward that. You have the individual, the individual human being before God, making choices and God's need to deal with the fact that we are not right before him. We have sinned, we have fallen short, and God's going to deal with that. And then you have mankind as a whole. There's the, the big, big picture that spans across all of humanity, from Adam and Eve all the way to the present tense. And so we have issues that have to be addressed, and these texts come up against some of these issues, and one is left wondering if you don't have the whole picture. Well, what about it when my enemies, who are hurting and harming and causing all kinds of chaos in my life, what about that, Lord? Are you going to deal with them? Are you going to bring about some kind of righteous outcome? You know, we, we live in a world today in America where we're, we're looking at all kinds of issues where we see social injustices and we want to see things happen in a just way. That's, that's kind of the direction of our nation and whatever you want to put into that, that's kind of a, an issue that's always at hand. It's probably always been prevalent because we are fallen human beings. So these issues get brought to our attention and we have to address them. And we turn to God and we say, what do you think, Lord? What are you going to do about all of these things? And so there's this question, when and what is going to happen? And so when we consider the full counsel of Scripture, we discover something very interesting. We discover that it is God's prerogative to judge sin, to judge a sinful nation, and to judge all of mankind for their sin. It is his prerogative. It is also his responsibility, and he takes that responsibility incredibly seriously, which we will see in a moment as we consider other passages of Scripture. Well, what I want us to begin with is to understand that when God delays in executing his just, his right to judge sin and sinners and sinful nations and all of sinful mankind, he can choose to delay. He can choose to be merciful. Well, he is a merciful God. That is his nature. It's part of who God is, is to be described as merciful. Well, what is mercy? Well, I can say it like this. If God were not merciful, then he would just execute justice the moment any of us sinned. And it would be just all over for humanity in an instant. There would be no lingering in the garden and then, and then you know, the curse unfolding and then over time, you know, all the generations of humanity. It would just be all done. God could have chosen to do that. That, that would have been, if he wasn't merciful, what would have happened. But because God is merciful... He has allowed us the opportunity to respond to his grace. So his mercy is the withholding of the justice that God would bring about in our lives and in the existence of humanity, the withholding of that for a time so that we can experience his grace, the grace of God. That is what his mercy allows us to receive. And so the cross of Christ is the grace of God unfolding so in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the cross. They needed to be saved through faith in God, entrusting that there would be a Savior that would come one day. All of the saints, David included, in the Old Testament, were saved by grace through faith in God. Just like we have to put our faith in God, their salvation came as a result of putting their faith in a God 
who was gracious and would one day send a redeemer, and that redeemer is Jesus. And so in light of all of these things, recognize that in the, the macrocosm and in the microcosm, there's an outpouring of God's mercy so that people can respond to his grace. And uh, we need to be very well aware that there's going to come a day when there's going to be the ultimate judgment happening. In Revelation chapter 20, I invite you to turn there. We will see in verses 11 through 15 this reality. There will come a time when there will be the ultimate vindication of all wrongs, and it will be Jesus Christ who meets out the just outcomes for all of sinful humanity. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in, it, in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This passage brings into reality what the outcome of our sin is. What is the outcome of our lawless actions against a holy God? The outcome is ultimately separation from God in hell. That is what we read there. And you notice that there were the books, and then there was the book, the book of life. The Lamb's Book of Life is the book that records the names of those who have put their hope in Jesus Christ for salvation. And in the Book of Life are recorded the names of those whose sin has been completely dealt with by the person of Jesus Christ. For you see, Jesus, the one who's offering and meeting out all of this judgment for sin, had all of the sin of the names of those people in his Book of Life blotted out because he paid the penalty for them in full on the cross when he died for sinners such as you and I. It's an incredible thing to contemplate what has occurred in this moment in time when Jesus bore upon himself our sin. It's a big deal. And so if you reject this message of hope during the time of mercy, if you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and you say, no, no, I, you know, I don't know about that. I think that God perhaps isn't really like the scriptures declare. Perhaps, uh, you know, I believe in a God who doesn't have to bring about any kind of justice or judgments like that. Certainly not against me. I'm not that bad. We live in a culture that loves to recreate God in, their, in an image that suits their interests. Nobody likes to hear a message that God is going to bring judgment ultimately upon sinners. Nobody wants to hear a message like that. Nobody wants to face that reality. I get it. I truly understand. I don't like to hear those thoughts come out of my mouth, but they're a reality that I had to come to grips with. They're a reality that you have to grapple with as well. And for we who have put our hope in Jesus, the good news is, oh, your name is in his book of life. When that great judgment comes, you're not going to face the penalty for all your sins. God remembers them no more. They have been completely removed. 
What a gift. What a blessing. Well, in this text that we're looking at, this little passage here, there's a few things that are nuances of this. It says that in verse 5, you've rebuked the nations, you have destroyed the wicked, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. Well, okay, so what about the nation that isn't blotted out? Their name is, is, is still in existence, and you're suffering because of that nation. I read the book last year entitled Night by Ellie Weasel, and he described his personal experiences of growing up. He's a, a Jewish man, so as a Jewish boy, he grew up. Uh, he learned all the things that a Jewish boy learns. You know, he learned Hebrew, he studied the scriptures, he studied the, uh, the theologians in their world, their, their thoughts on things, and he had developed a very clear understanding of who God was, his relationship toward God, and he knew passages like Psalm 9, and he understood that God would judge an unrighteous nation, and then he's growing up where? He's growing up in a time when Nazi Germany is in existence. He grows up in a time when his family gets taken captive and put into one of the concentration camps and suffer at the hands of these people who committed atrocities that are unmentionable and probably have never been fully written down and recorded, the atrocities against these individuals that were taken prisoner by them. And so while he was in this concentration camp and while he was suffering, he was mindful of these passages of Scripture, but he was not aware, he did not fully understand that it is God's prerogative as to when a judgment will befall a nation. And so he actually lost faith in God while he was in those times of torture and starvation and watching all of his family members die. He lost faith in God. He didn't understand the whole picture well enough. He could have, but he did not. It's important for us to understand that we don't have to lose heart because we don't have justice happen in the timeline that we hope for it to happen in. We can hold on to the fact that God will ultimately bring about justice. Even in all of the events that I just described, God will bring about justice in all of those circumstances. It just hasn't yet happened. Now, who can do such a thing? Well, let me just say this. Only a God who can raise the dead can do that. And he can. So he can make sure that everybody gives an account for everything that they've done. But just be mindful of the fact that you owe that same debt. You, you have to give that same an accounting, uh, same accounting to a, a holy God. Verse 8, look at verse 8. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Well, God does judge the world in righteousness. The world is, is completely without excuse. There's not a soul alive or who has died in history who is going to stand before God and claim that they have God owing them, that they can stand before God and be his judge. You know, it's strange to me, but we live in a current contemporary culture where people are talking to me about how they view God, and they are standing as God's judge. They're saying, well, my God wouldn't do X, Y, and Z. They're, they're saying, well, the scriptures, God has himself, and you are saying, no, this is not what's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to tell God what's so. I'm going I'm to somehow like pull out my trump card and say, that's unfair. 
seriously. This is what has happened in the mind's eye of many in our culture. If you haven't had these conversations with people, it won't take you long if you just ask a few questions. You know, tell me about the God that you believe in, and you'll get something along those lines in many cases. I've had many of these conversations. Well, it's interesting to note that Jesus let us know that right now, the Holy Spirit is in the world doing the very thing that God was doing as recorded in Psalm 9. The Holy Spirit is in the world right now convicting the world of God's righteousness, of their sin, and of coming judgment. And so if you, if you turn to John 16, 7 through 11, these are those thoughts expressed. Jesus said, But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So the Holy Spirit is active in the world present tense, bringing about this conviction. The Holy Spirit brought about that conviction in my own life. I am very well acquainted with the fact that I am not going to stand before God and appeal to him on the basis of my righteousness. When I get to the presence of God, it will be on my face in complete surrender to the work of Jesus Christ. I will plead nothing else. I will have nothing else to stand upon except for the work of Christ, his shed blood to cover and remove the penalty of my sin. What a beautiful gift that God has given to us if we will but receive it, if we will but respond to the grace while there is still mercy to be known in our lives. Because verse 10 puts it well. And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Understand, this is a time of grace where you can turn and you can be among those who receive the grace of God. Second Peter 3, 14 through 15a says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him, that is by Christ, in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. It is salvation because while there is this time of mercy, there is opportunity for people to respond to the grace of God. This is the gift. This is the great joy that we all can share in together, is that we can share this good news with those around us. I can preach it like I am this morning, and you hearing this have an opportunity because there is still life in your body to respond. And it is my prayer and my hope that you will put your hope in Jesus Christ. Make him Lord, King. Acknowledge that he is the Lord and King and your Savior, the one who saved you from your sin. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 now. It says, Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Also, we're, we're, we're offering praise to God for his great salvation that he has won. We are also acknowledging that there are things that have happened that are not right, that need to be set right. We acknowledge that. But this is an interesting thing to note. In the New Testament, we are given another opportunity or a different way of looking at our enemies, 
a different way of looking at those who oppress, a different way of looking at those who commit atrocities against us. This different way is expressed in Romans 12, verse 19, where it says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Well, that's an incredible thing. So now I don't have to create justice or be a vigilante to get justice to take place. In the context of my personal life with people who wrong me, I can leave room for God to deal with them. And there's several reasons for this to take place. Continue reading in Romans 12, verses 20 and 21. It says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that expression that's listed there, uh, heaping burning coals on their head, is not somehow of like, oh, you're going to make them feel really bad if you, if you treat them well. They'll feel bad about their sin, and they'll turn around, and they'll say, oh, I'm really sorry. Will you, will you forgive me? No, it's the idea of continuing to give them something that they need. You're giving them what they need. You're offering them grace. You're responding differently than they expect, yes, but to what end? So that hopefully in their life, they will choose the same God that you have chosen. They will put their hope in Jesus Christ, and they too could receive forgiveness for their sin. And then, where is the justice met out in that kind of scenario? On the cross. You see? It's an interesting twist, if you will. When people commit atrocities against us, we want them to be judged. We want them put in their place. We want God to rain fire down from heaven and solve our problem. But they need salvation like we need salvation. They're no less or no more deserving of salvation than you or I. And that's an opportunity that we're given. It's the twist of these ideas and concepts that we need to put into play in our lives with those that have wronged us. It's a radical freedom to be able to do that. You no longer have to be anxious, as was read in the scripture reading this morning. You can cast all of your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He also cares for people, even the people that have wronged you. And maybe there will come a day when salvation can be visited upon such an individual as has harmed you or your family. Maybe, by God's grace, that could happen. Jeremiah 31, 34 summarizes what happens with our sin before a holy God when we receive forgiveness. It says, They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's a reference to this time in which we live. Now, where we have God the Holy Spirit indwelling his people, where God lives among his people and where God has forgiven our sin. We're looking back on the cross. Our sins are removed. God sees them no more. You don't have to wonder if all the sins that you've committed against a holy God are going to be thrown back up in your face by a holy God because that holy God cannot see your sin anymore. It's completely removed and he, and he holds it no longer to our account. Look at verse 13 in Psalm 9. It says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death. Seek grace 
from God. This is what the psalmist is doing. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Seek grace from the Lord. It's interesting to understand that there can be afflictions that come upon us that could even lead unto death. Um, there are many who are serving right now in the world in Muslim countries where the penalty for faith in Jesus or letting somebody know that you are a Christ follower, the penalty is public execution immediately, probably without trial. It's just going to happen. Um, a mob of young men might even bring about that outcome if they were to find that you were a Christian in their nation. This is a, a, a relevant thing to think about right now today for many people in the world. They are suffering unto death to bring the message of the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done, the message that I have been hoping to proclaim and portray for you this morning. To, it, to do this in some places in the world would mean my immediate execution if they heard and they understood what I was doing. And so they're there in these places preaching the good news of Jesus Christ however they can without getting caught and killed. And a group of these Muslim uh, missionaries to the Muslims that I once had the opportunity to listen to at a conference, they were sharing how they went about the practical daily existence that they experience. And one of the things that they expressed, and I'm sure you've heard this expressed before, but it's worth noting at this time, is that they, were, they viewed themselves as completely invincible until the Lord called them home. They went about their work in the, in the ministry that they were called to with the mindset that nothing will happen to me until it's time for the Lord to take me home. So their life was just his, and meaning God's, and then whenever God chose the timing for their departure from this world, for whatever reason, they were good with that. Now that's how we should be living our lives, exactly the same way. We shouldn't be living in the fear of men. We shouldn't be concerned about what people think about the gospel message or about what it means to live for Jesus Christ in this world. We shouldn't be ashamed of his name in any way, come what may. But oftentimes we will be timid. We will be not sure if we should speak, not sure if we should proclaim, not sure what we should say in a certain situation. But we need to be bold. We also just need to live life without fear, without anxiety. That, that communicates the gospel in a way that maybe nothing else can. In the times that I served in the fire service, there were occasions when we were doing things that were life-threatening. Well, when you go boldly and, you, and you're calm, your heart rate's not, you know, through the roof and you're just executing things in a, in a, a, a rational frame of mind, people take note. The question gets asked, aren't you scared? Well, you know, I might be a little scared, but I mean, if I die, I die. What do you mean if you die, you die? Well, I've already almost died so many times, I don't even know how to tell you how many times I've almost died. And God hasn't seen fit to take me yet. So if I'm still here, I'm still here for a reason. So I'm totally good with that. Whatever comes will come in the sense that if I'm doing what God has called me to do and he chooses that this is the point in time when my life ends, that's the point in time it ends for his glory, for his, his praise and for the good of the people that he has purposed to communicate with through my life. It's an amazing thing to consider all of those things. So you don't have to be afraid, even of little tasks that have to get done. Go through life without fear. There's some people that 
I knew growing up, they didn't want to get their driver's license because they had been in a car accident and they were scared to death that if they got their driver's license that they would get into a car accident and they would, what, die or you know, suffer some kind of injury or whatever. We have to be able to take on whatever challenges come our way fearlessly because we serve a God who has total control of all things, including your life, your daily, ordinary lives. So that when you get called upon in some extraordinary event, you're likely to do what? Remain faithful, continue to hold the line, because you've already been practicing it day in and day out, this, this life of faith in God. So because we can face death courageously, we should all live fearlessly as Christians. Fearlessly. COVID was a great example of a time when you had the opportunity to live fearlessly for the glory of God. It just, it just was in so many different ways. I, I couldn't even begin to tell you all the ways. But people were scared. People were scared to death that they would get COVID. It's affected people's lives in our congregation. It is, it is God's prerogative to decide how long our lifespan is. And if, if I am called to go into the home of somebody with COVID, and I might get COVID as a result because I'm the EMT on scene, and it might take my life, but that's my job, that's what I do. Who's in charge of my life? God. He is the one who is in control of all of these things. We must entrust ourselves to the faithfulness of a creator God who knows the number of days we will live. He knows how they will be lived, whether we will suffer greatly or whether we will suffer a little. He knows all these matters. And he alone is sufficient to give us the grace that we need for those events in our lives. The psalmist understood that. So, how may I t that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. That's what four, verse 14 says. So we have opportunity to give praise to God. I hope that you're quick to give God the, gl the glory, give him the credit for any of these good things that are expressed in your life that I've just described. If you can face a challenge fearlessly, well, that's something to give credit to God for. Why can you? Well, because God has my days numbered. I can, I can say that. I can tell that to people. Verses 15 through 17, it says, The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands, the wicked is snared. The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. This is just a, a quick thing I want to share about nations in general. So obviously we live in the nation of the United States of America. Some of you may have lived in another nation. But all nations still have a given account to God. There's still a relationship between God and people. It always exists. It's never free from that. So what about a nation that lives in defiance of God as a nation? What happens? Is there consequences of that? Does this just all get rolled up into the great white throne judgment in some capacity? Well, it is God's prerogative to decide what kinds of judgments will befall a nation. Um, We've often heard of the circumstances of natural disasters occurring. We've often heard of things where these, like I think the insurance companies still describe those as acts of God. Uh, 
God is sovereign over all things. There is nothing that happens in this world that is outside of God's sovereign control. If that is true, if you mark that as a truism, then anything that happens to a nation by an act of God is a gift of God's mercy and grace to wake us up, to cause our minds to rightly orient toward our own relationship with a God that exists over us where you see that we are but people, frail human beings, and the things that happen within nature, the things that happen in these catastrophic ways are, are ever before us to, in part, remind us that we are but dust. And it's hopefully to wake us up, to stimulate us, to repent of our sin, to turn ourselves toward and orient ourselves rightly toward God. So whenever there is opportunity and occasion as his people, we should give pro proclamation of the hope that is within us and be quick and ready to respond in any and every situation that befalls us. Our nation has turned away from God as a whole, I would say. There are still many who are believers in this country, many more than, say, were recorded to have existed in Sodom and Gomorrah, like we looked at in the Sunday school hour. Many more. And that is the salt and the light that exists within this land. But as God works his way, as the law of reaping and sowing unfolds, there's the corrosive nature to living life apart from God that affects a nation. And I feel like our nation is like my old Ford F-100 pickup truck that I had. <laughs> it was uh, in the late 90s, and I think I had a 1978. And one, one morning... I got out to drive my truck, and it was in two pieces. It had just gone like this. And, you know, right where the bed met the, the bed of the truck met the cab of the truck, it had just broken down right down to the ground. And uh, I thought, well, how interesting. I knew it was rusty. I didn't know it was that rusty. And, and that's, that's what happens. A nation can be corroding. It can, all the framework can be coming apart, and we just don't know, and we don't know when that is just going to crack. We don't know when God is in his... It's his prerogative to decide these things. He, he allows a nation to stand, and he is responsible for when a nation falls, and he is responsible for what comes next as he executes his overarching purposes and plans. I'm just simply saying, be mindful of the opportunities that come to you individually in the midst of all of that to make proclamation that this is a time of mercy, but it, it, it isn't guaranteed how long that time will last. We don't know. John David has done an excellent job of conveying the fact that we don't know when, and the emphasis needs to be on, well, then how now ought we to live in light of the fact that we just don't know? And so here we are, given this opportunity. Let us make full use of it. The needy, verse 18, will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Well, it's interesting that in this, this it's almost a, the way it's written is to say, well, you know, have they been forgotten? You know, like it's saying, well, they won't because I'm trusting that God will take care of these matters, but, but have they? Do they feel like there's hopelessness when I'm afflicted? Is, it gonna, is this affliction going to last forever? No, not forever. Just remember, it is, it is absolutely true that God cares about the needy and the impoverished, all of the rest, all these sorts of injustices. It is God's prerogative to decide when he meets out his just measures in response to those things. And so keep, keeping all of that in mind, let's look at the last two verses, verses 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. 
Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is a statement which I view as a statement of, you need to humble yourselves, people. You need to come under the mighty hand of God. You need to recognize that it is this, that is, it is the human nature to be boastful and prideful and arrogant and to be accusatory toward God and to set things in motion in our timeline and to do things the way we want them to be done. And so God commands us throughout Scripture to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. May we be willing to do that. It's interesting that in, in the depiction of some of the judgments that are coming in the book of Revelation, all this time, people railing against God, not following God, but one thing remains true in all those judgments is they know it is God. They know he exists. They're hiding from him, but there's no question God is real and ever-present in his creation. They knew that. I feel like we live in a time where people are trying to escape that reality in some measure, but you really cannot escape that reality. Well, we, we must not. So we must bring it to bear in people's thinking that there is a God, and we do have it to do with him. And so, um, in summary, what, I would what I'd like to do is just simply say this. God is a God who is merciful, God is a God who is gracious. You are here this morning because of both. You are here this morning because God's mercy has kept you alive. And here you remain with us today. What a wonderful gift. We thank God for that. But you are here and alive, not just so that you can get through the day. You are here and alive so that you can acknowledge and worship your creator. Well, if you wish to do that, the beginning point is to acknowledge what your creator has done for you. You, in your sinfulness, have fallen short of the glory of God. You deserve death, separation from God. You deserve to have your name written in the books, and you deserve to have the great white throne judgment come upon you where all of your sins are brought before you and you are cast into hell. That is what you deserve. But you are here, alive, receiving this morning a message from God of grace so that you can have your sins entirely removed through putting your hope, your confidence, your trust in Jesus Christ, the living God who became a man and bore your sin on the cross. I implore you, do not presume upon the mercy of God. Entrust yourselves to Jesus Christ as your Savior today. Lord Jesus, we come before you grateful, thankful for the mercy and the grace that you have afforded to us. We certainly don't deserve either. We have fallen short of your glory, but we have received them nevertheless because of who you are. You are most merciful and you're most gracious. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would respond to your invitation to lay our lives open before you, to confess our sins, to number them before you, and to realize that you paid for them on the cross and to receive from you the forgiveness that you offer.
to fallen, sinful human beings such as myself. Lord Jesus, thank you for so great a salvation as this. It's in your name I pray.